Good evening. Thank you, Walter. The title of this sermon tonight is, I Saw My Lord Dying. Uh, how many of you saw the, the movie, Passion of the Christ? Like that. You might recognize that picture. That's, that's when uh, Mary and Mary and John were looking on as Christ was on the cross, dying. My reading tonight is from John chapter 19, verses 28 through 37. If you care to follow along. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, so they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Now, verse 31, since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. First of all, I, I think I need to explain the chronology of what took place that week so that it can be confusing, okay? And you'll, you'll see why it can be confusing here in just a minute. Notice that John says, for that Sabbath was a high day. First, you must understand that the Jewish day begins at sundown or moonrise at 6.30 or so. But the, it, it's not, you know, it doesn't change at midnight like ours does. You know, our, our day begins at 12.01. The confusing part <clears throat> was that there were two Sabbaths that week. You see, the day that John is referring to in our scripture is not the weekly Sabbath, which would be our Saturday, 
He's not talking about that Sabbath, but he's talking about a high holy day, the day of convocation to the Lord, an annual Sabbath. It was the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the Lord commanded in Leviticus 23, 7, for that to be a high holy day, a Sabbath day in which no regular work would be performed. So, let's back up and recap a little. It's Tuesday. During the daytime, Jesus and the 12 disciples arrive from Bethany to partake in a Passover meal together. So they go into the upper room that was prepared for them and they recline at the table and now it's now past sundown. So it's now Nisan 14, which is Passover. Passover has begun. After the meal, they went out to the Mount of Olives where Judas betrayed Jesus. He was arrested and taken before the priest, the high priest, Caiaphas. The trial ends around daybreak. It's now Wednesday, Nisan 14, still same day, which is preparation day for the annual Sabbath, the high holy day. Jesus is crucified and dies at the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m. His body is given to Joseph of Arimathea. It's placed in his tomb around twilight. Now this is night one. The annual Sabbath has begun at sunset around 6.30. This is the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is a high holy day, a Sabbath day to the Lord. The date now is Nisan 15, day one. This annual Sabbath ends at sunset around 6.30. Night two begins. The next morning, it's Friday, Nisan 16, and the annual Sabbath is now over. So the women prepare the spices anointing <clears throat> for anointing Jesus' body. At sunset, or the beginning of night three, the weekly Sabbath begins, the regular Sabbath, the Saturday Sabbath. And no regular work may be performed. Sunrise, it is day three. It's now Saturday, Nisan 17, and the Sabbath is still going. We'll <clears throat> and will end at sunset. So the women cannot attend to the body that day. They must rest, and they, they have to wait until the next day. At sunset, the Sabbath is over, and it is the end of day three. Jesus, in accordance with the scriptures and God's awesome plan, rose sometime after sunset that day. This fulfilled his own prophecy from Matthew 12, where he said, Just as Jonah the prophet was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The next morning is Sunday. And the women go to the tomb and discover that he is risen. He is risen indeed. Okay. Now that we have the chronology down for that week, let's go back to our scripture and pick up with verse 32 and 34, or 32 through 34. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him, but they came 
But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. So, where did all this blood and water come from? Again, I refer back to the movie, The Passion of the Christ. A lot of you saw it, and it was pretty brutal, wasn't it? The sad thing is, it was, from what I understand, it was pretty accurate. The Roman flogging or scourging that Jesus endured prior to being crucified normally consisted of 39 lashes, but could be more. And you can see that in Mark 15, 15. The whip that was used is called a phlegrum, consisted of braided leather thongs with metal balls and pieces of sharp bone woven into and intertwined within the braids. The balls added weight to the whip, causing deep bruising and contusions in the victim as he was struck. The pieces of bone served to cut into the flesh. As the beating continued, the results cuts were so severe that the skeletal muscles and underlying veins, sinews, and bowels of the victim would, would be exposed. The beating was so severe that at times victims would not survive it in order to be crucified. Those who were flogged would often go into hypovolemic shock, a term that refers to low blood volume. In other words, the person would have lost so much blood that they would go into shock. And the results would be this. The heart would race to pump blood that wasn't there. The victim would collapse or faint due to low blood pressure. The kidneys would shut down to preserve body fluids. The person would experience extreme thirst and the body desired to replenish those lost fluids. There is evidence in scripture that Jesus experienced hypovolemic shock as a result of being flogged. As Jesus carried his own cross to Golgotha, John 19, 17, he collapsed and a man named Simon was forced to either carry the cross for him or help Jesus carry the cross the rest of the way. This collapse indicates Jesus had low blood pressure. Another indicator that Jesus suffered hypovolemic shock was that he declared he was thirsty. He hung on the cross indicating his body's desire to replenish fluids. Prior to death, the sustained rapid heartbeat caused hypovolemic shock also causes fluid to gather in the sac around the heart and the lungs. This gathering of fluid in the membrane around the heart is called pericardial effusion, and the fluid gathering around the lungs is called pleural effusion. 
This explains why, after Jesus died and the Roman soldier thrust a spear through Jesus' side, probably his right side, and piercing both heart and lungs, blood and water came out from his side, just as John recorded. Now I'd like to back up a little and, and take a look at verse 28 and 29. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar of sour wine was there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. The vinegar wine was there because in those days, they thought that that product would help to ease the pain of the one being executed. But John clarified here why it was offered to Jesus to fulfill scripture. More specifically, Psalm 42, my soul thirst for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And Psalm 63:1, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you, my soul thirst for you. My flesh faints for you. Then in John verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus uttered these three words, it is finished. Those three words are probably, without a doubt, the most important words ever uttered to humankind. So what was Jesus talking about here? What was finished? This utterance of Christ is only found in the Gospel of John. And the word used here in the Greek is tetelestia. And it is actually an accounting term. And it means paid in full. Jesus was declaring that the debt owed to the Holy Father was wiped away completely and forever. And he wasn't talking about any debt that he owed the Father. He's talking about my debt and your debt. The debt, the sin of man, was now paid in full. Can you praise Jesus for that? Amen. At his death on the cross, when he uttered, it is finished. A lot of other things were finished as well. But I think without a doubt, this, this one point is the most important. But he also finished his work here on earth. He finished the will of his father. He finished the fulfillment of over 300 prophecies. And his suffering was also finished. Just like when we draw our last breath. Our suffering will be finished. 
These last two verses in, were all uh, were Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled. The last one is a direct quote from the prophet Zechariah, chapter 12, verse 10, about the piercing of the side. The first passage, not one of his bones will be broken, comes from a place that you probably least expect comes from Exodus, chapter 12, verse 46. And it's actually part of God's instructions to the Israelites for the institution of the first Passover. God was instructing them to not break any of the bones of their Passover lamb. They had to choose their male lamb four days prior had to be without blemish, spotless, perfect, one-year-old lamb. And then they had to keep it in the house with them for four days to care for it, make sure nothing got damaged on it, that it was okay. But in the meantime, you know the kids and the, and, and the wife have done got attached to the thing four days living in the house with you, then they had to slaughter the lamb, roast it, and eat every bit of the meat before morning. But they were not to break any of its bones. And here we have our Passover lamb, Jesus of Nazareth, a man without blemish or spot a man that John the Baptist identified as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world in John 1.29. Now, we mentioned two prophecies from Scripture that were fulfilled by Jesus. But do you know really how many prophecies were fulfilled by Jesus? And I mentioned earlier over 300. There are some scholars that say it's well over 400. Now, Brother Tony presented to us here a while back some uh, interesting, very interesting statistical data in our Sunday morning adult Bible study. And it's where a professor and 600 college students calculated the odds of one man fulfilling just the major prophecies and when I say major, they picked out eight. That's all they picked out was eight out of this three or four hundred. <coughs> they calculated the odds of one man fulfilling just these major prophecies. This was done by a professor emeritus of science at Westmont College, Peter Stoner. And it was uh, students from 12 different classes that, and it, there were 600 students totally in the, that were in this program. The students carefully weighed all the factors, discussed each prophecy at length, and examined the various circumstances which might indicate that men had conspired together to fulfill a particular prophecy. They made their estimates conservative enough so that there was finally unanimous 
agreement, even among the most skeptical of the students. However, Professor Stoner then took their estimates and made them even more conservative. He also encouraged other skeptics or scientists to make their own estimates to see if his conclusions were more than fair. Finally, he submitted his figures for review to a committee of the American Scientific Affiliation. Upon examination, they verified that his calculations were dependable and accurate in regard to the scientific material presented. After examining only eight different prophecies, remember there were over 400, possibly at least 300, and they only considered eight. They conservative conservatively estimated that the chance of one man fulfilling all eight of these prophecies was one in 10 to the 17th power. To illustrate how large the number is, 10 to the 17th power, it's a, it's a figure with 17 zeros behind it, okay? But that's still hard to fathom. So Stoner gives this explanation, or, or illustration, I should say. If you mark one ticket out of 10, you put all 10 tickets in a hat, you shake it up real good, you blindfold a man and let him draw one ticket out, his, his, the chances of him getting the marked ticket are one in 10, right? Okay. If you take one or 10 to the 17th power of silver dollars and you spread them, all over the state of Texas. You'll cover the state of Texas two feet deep. That's how many silver dollars it would be. And then you stir it all up, you mix them all up good, and you have one of them marked, you blindfold a man and you tell him you can, he, you can walk as far as you want to, and you pick up one. That's, that's the odds we're talking about. Like picking up a two foot deep, all over the state of Texas, silver dollars. Pick up one silver dollar, and if you get the right one, well, you beat the odds. I mean, what chance would he have? Just the same chance, the same chance that the prophets would have had writing these eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man, which they did from their day to the present time, providing they wrote them in their own wisdom, which we know they did not. They were written with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you something. Do we have any investors here tonight? Now, I'm not talking about serious investors. You have IRAs, you have 401Ks, you know, a bunch of people. I do. Yeah. Let me ask you something. <clears throat> if your broker came to you and he said, Dennis, I have got the perfect instrument to put all your retirement into. All of it. It's very near perfect investment. You're, 
it's been proven, mathematically proven, Dennis, that the chances of this investment failing is one in 10 to the 17th power. Would you put your trust and faith in that investment? Well, that's exactly, that's exactly what I'm asking you to do tonight. Exactly. God has provided for you an investment that is a sure thing and it cannot fail. That investment is to put your faith and trust in God's broker, his only son, Jesus Christ. And here's the clincher. Here's the clincher. It ain't going to cost you a dime. It's free. Your broker has paid in full for you. All you have to do is put him in charge of your spiritual finances. Let him manage your portfolio of faith. And with this investment, there's no waiting period. You can become fully vested tonight, right now, right here. You know why? Because Jesus died for you. He died for me. He didn't. He didn't just die for us. He suffered and died. to finish his work. Let's pray. Father God, creator of heaven and earth, thank you. Thank you for sending us. Thank you for sending us your son. Thank you, Jesus, for your determination to suffer and finish your work and complete the will of the Father. As we draw near to Resurrection Sunday, Lord, we pray you will strengthen our resolve and provide us with what we need to press on toward our heavenly calling. We are truly blessed to be a part of your kingdom and to be adopted into your family Father, I just pray that if there's anyone here tonight that has not committed and accepted your free gift of salvation, I pray, Father, that you would send down your Holy Spirit right now and give that person the power to make that decision, to put their trust in your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.